Welcome back, everybody. Time once again for another episode of Church Hurts and featuring the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today with a dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you've ever had questions like most of us had about the current state of your church, maybe even become a bit jaded on the whole subject of religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, and as you know, he became an ordained Presbyterian minister. Planted three churches along the way, taught at a prestigious university, and was even a teaching pastor at one of those mega churches. But now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never ceases to ask the one question that never leaves our minds. Why? So why not bring him in? The why seeker himself, (laughs) John Bash. Hey, John. Hey, Paul. Since the world seems very upside down these days, let us begin with an upside down story, shall we? Many people do not realize that most prestigious universities were begun with their major emphasis um, to train ministers. Harvard, Yale, they were Puritan schools. Harvard was named after a Christian minister. Yale was started by a clergyman. Princeton defined Presbyterianism for a long time, finding its roots in the log college designed specifically to train ministers. One only has to check out the old crests and the Latin slogans of many schools to discover the truth of this. Certainly, there's an irony to the fact that most of these schools morphed into institutions overtly hostile to any version of classical Christianity. By the early 1900s, farmers were saving for a lifetime to send one of their children to college, and then they got back a confident, faithless adult child. Soon colleges started to pop up, assuring parents this faithless transition wouldn't occur as Bible colleges. But now the story gets even weirder. Churches themselves started to imitate what happened in the colleges and universities. More and more traditional beliefs were falling away as sophisticated thinkers assured people that no one with a brain really believes many of the things in the Bible anymore. 19th century philosophical liberalism was turning into the story of 20th century mainstream churches. Intelligence was being measured not by what one believed, but by what they didn't believe. Gone were the Sunday school stories of a creation mandated by God. Moses in the burning bush, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark, Jesus walking on the water, and the gravestone rolled away. We knew better now. 2,000 years after the time of Christ, we had figured it out. Those poor, ignorant people for 1,900 years who believed in a God who created something out of nothing and sent his son to redeem mankind just didn't get the truth. So by the time the 1970s rolled around, churches were pretty well divided between those who were more Bible-believing and those more of what we'll call progressive For many of these issues weren't doing anything for them spiritually, emotionally, or really in any way. And so the decline of church attendance got momentum. It was boring. It was irrelevant, faithless, and passe. But 
get to today, there were some young baby boomers about half a century ago who decided that the issues weren't so much intellectual ones as they were stylistic. Princetonian sermons with three alliterated points and a poem weren't relevant to real life. Hymns and responsive readings were boring. Creeds in unison seemed meaningless. What would happen if we took a biblically-based message with relevant application for real life and combined it with music we actually listened to and dropped out the boring liturgy? Maybe even throw in a drama or a multimedia show. Orange County, California had some of the first churches developed with many of these thoughts. The Crystal Cathedral was a precursor of sorts to the movement, and Robert Schuller, a mentor to many, many in it, Calvary Chapel certainly comes to mind. South Coast Community Church, now Mariners, was another. Later on, Saddleback took the lead. That's the kind of church many millennials saw as typical church. And we get to talk to one of those people today. Ryan Gaffney was a student at Woodbridge High School in Irvine. He studied at Concordia University and then went on to Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He now pastors College Park Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida. To all of this stuff, Ryan, welcome to Church Hurts And. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Ryan, what was it like growing up in that kind of mega church with those kind of priorities? You know, that's not even fair. Before I ask that question, do you kind of, was that a decent summary? Am I in the right ballpark by your experience? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think you've done a good job of describing the, the history of the, of the American Protestant movement. If I had any, any constructive criticism, I'd say I, I feel like you stopped about 30 years too early. That's why if you're here. Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was the 1970s and yeah. Crystal Cathedral was the 1980s, then Saddleback and Mariners were about the 1990s. And we've got to look and say, what what were the aughts? What were the the 2000s and the 2010s? And I, I mean, I left uh, hanging out around Rock Harbor in 2010, and I don't know what happened in the 20-teens, uh, but it seemed like New Song was poised to kind of take that mantle. Dave Gibbons at New Song was ahead of the wave as far as multi-ethnicity and third culture church which is, of course, very uh, live and active in the conversations this month going on in the world. Uh, but yeah, but then I, I've been out of the kind of Orange County church scene. But yeah, I'd, I'd just say that that reinvention, it keeps happening. It's it's not a, you know, a, a reformation where, oh boy, ni- 1980, that's when we figured it out and we, we turned on the praise music. In fact, I... In my context, in, in the PCUSA, that's a problematic mindset I come against a lot. Where... Okay, let's, let's not, let, oh. I don't want to let you get there yet. All right, let's go I back get there to, yet. I, I totally agree with your revision, um, but, <laughs> but, but you had to correct you. Uh, let's put Chris Cathedral in the 60s, then get to Calvary Chapel, 60s, 70s. But those are details. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is I was trying to get us to that place where the church really had hit such a wall. There were such a decline in mainstream kind of church attendance was really beginning when this more modern church kind of movement that birthed everything else came in. But you really grown up, you grew up in the middle of that's the, the water it's all you knew. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that's is. All, 
And what was yeah. that like in terms of, because you grew up in that mega church, kind of in that modern church movement. That's what you thought church was. Sure. Yeah, I, I remember going to VBSs where we had Disney Imagineers designing uh, <laughs> designing the sets and writing parody music songs. Um, we had a children's ministry worship leader who was also a nationally like on a national label as a as a artist. Um, and my my junior high and high school experience, my youth group experience was larger than most churches. I think we had. 600 people at the time in junior high when I was a part of it, probably about twice that many in high school. Uh, so always, it was, yeah. I always thought it was interesting um, that there were these mega churches in Orange County that people would come from all over the country to see what they were doing right. Uh, I was the pastor of one of them for a number of years. And, and what struck me was just people would come and they'd go back feeling so guilty because kindergartens were bigger than their entire churches. And the degree of professionalism, quote unquote, that you just described was overwhelming. Of course, if we had these national artists and creators and an infinite amount of money, um, we could have that. And they really, they really felt like, wow, how do we do ministry? And it was sometimes very discouraging as opposed to encouraging. But mm -hmm. what I find for you, did you find that that really was engaging for your peers? Find a lot of your peers made the decision, no, we're going to stay with church compared to those who would go to a more traditional place? Uh, I, you know, that's that's hard to define. I think I think we're, we're perpetually dealing with the problem of of churches not appreciating and listening to young people well enough and young people, therefore showing a, a vague disinterest in church. That's not a generational issue. It, it really is a proximal development issue. It's 20-somethings of every generation. And then you have kids, and then you realize you need church, and, and the church starts deciding to listen to you a little more. But I, I will say for me, that environment formed a fantastic playground where I had access to everything I could ask for in terms of stuff to try, stuff to fail at. That's where I first uh, learned video editing was, you know, working with youth groups at Mariner's Church. That's where I, I gave my first speech in front of a group for the, the Saturday night service of a high school ministry that, you know, had 10, 12 people come into it. And then, yeah, also there was that, that quality, which was a blessing and a curse, that everything was so, so well polished in some ways, it was very Disneyland. It, it was very plastic and artificial and unapproachable. You couldn't, you couldn't play in big church. Big church was scripted and timed and down to the minute. But you could, you could go to Mini Street, where Mariners bought a block of Santa Ana and decided to do like a poverty redevelopment mission. And it was just available. You could play with foster kids, with Royal Family Kids Camp, Teen Leadership Camp. And so there was lots of just stuff on the outskirts to, yeah, just get my feet wet in every kind of context. Imagine It was just a big, big, wide playground. So I think Irvine in general is. A playground without a place to play sometimes. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go to Santa Ana if you really want to play. something in the middle that was, that was untouchable, <laughs> that, was, that was too perfect, that was, Yeah. But then, um, so so you grew up in the height, basically, of one of the largest yet lesser known mega churches. Um, yep. But certainly filled with affluence, with all of those things around you, and yet 
you are here and people look at your name and they say, Reverend Ryan Gaffney, you ended up going into a traditional mainstream denomination, which would almost in many ways be seen as the opposite of what you grew up in. That's the reverse of where the trends are going, Ryan. Talk to me. Yeah, um, it's been a long journey, certainly. I, I fancy myself as having a, a, an eclectic church experience. I came to Mariners by way of a Deep South Pentecostal spirit-filled church. That wow. was my early upbringing. And then I went and I, I had my children's ministry, youth group, late children's ministry, and full youth group and youth group volunteering experience there at the mega church. And then I went from there to, to Concordia University and discovered for the first time people have like opinions about doctrine and theology, and they, <laughs> those opinions matter to them, and they talk about them intellectually. That was a period, and, and during that time is when I started to find that leadership was available, that I could be a small group leader at Mariners, or I could be youth pastor at a, at a small Methodist church that there were just more vacuums, more availability for, and more need, frankly, for people like me who are starting out at the smaller churches. And Mariners, with its high salaries and attractiveness, was attracting the best of the best, and I won that yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's where I got started in that community, and then, uh, and then took a big detour through InterVarsity. Tell me, uh, Concordia is a Lutheran school, and it's not really a mainstream, though. It's kind of in the evangelical world as well. But you ended up going, instead of becoming convinced by the Lutherans, how did you end up being a Presbyterian, the Frozen Chosen? Well, I, you know, I got connected with Irvine Presbyterian Church. Irvine Presbyterian Church was associated with my high school. My alma mater, Woodbridge High School, they did a ministry there called Jesus Pizza, where every Friday they um, provided better pizza for a better price than the cafeteria did. And I found that there was a college ministry there that was doing, doing real stuff, doing depth, Bible study that engaged scholarship and that, that talked about things as if we weren't kids anymore and, and weren't weren't needing another review of the basics of the faith or the essentials of salvation. And that was when I, I first got connected with the, the Presbyterian Church. I never intended for that to be a big uh, lifelong commitment thing, but I, I seem to keep falling back. Mm-hmm. And let's put this in some more sociological categories. It's easy for me to default into church stories because I was one of those who was a pastor at the big mega church, but I my roots were starting little churches and mm-hmm. and growing those kind of from scratch. But that was my experience as a I am a classic baby boomer. And when we mm-hmm. talked in uh preparation for this show. I, I remember coming to Sand Canyon Church, by the way, back in the era where I was rebelling against my parents' religiosity. I would come with Johnny to Sand Canyon Church that you were planting. Yeah, well, um, there we had we had some fun at that church. But let's talk about you as the millennial. Mm-hmm. For listeners who get confused about those generational categories, which is easy to do, I'm the baby boomer, and then there were the Gen Xers, and then we got around to the millennials born around 1981 to 96, and now we talk about the Gen Z. But explain to me as a millennial and one who's gotten a bit more academic and reflective, some of those big categories that you see being different than your parents and 
And then I then I want to pick on you know what it was like too to grow up with parents that were of my generation. But start out. What's a millennial? What's that mean to you? Well, I I mean I often end up in these kind of conversations giving the uh, the the token millennials perspective. Uh, most of the leaders in uh, the churches around me are at least ten years older, usually twenty or thirty. And I'm I'm the guy who walks into the room and and they ask me if I'm the youth pastor, and I say no, I'm I, you know I'm the pastor. But everybody at all these churches wants to attract the millennials. They want to figure out what do we got to do to get the millennials in the door. And so I I end up talking a lot about that. I I think a lot of talking about millennials begins with talking about how much we don't actually know, how much how much we think we know when we're wrong about. For one thing, we're using the word millennials. You you did a good job of defining it. You know, ending with those born in '96. We most of the time we're talking about all oh, these millennials these days. We're we're using it as a kind of synonym for young whippersnappers. And the oldest millennials are 40 now. The youngest have already graduated uh, college on time. There are no more millennials in college right. unless they're in GI Bill or something. And there's another generation after Z that are already in sixth grade, and we haven't even realized they exist yet. <laughs> so, so a lot of times we're talking about churches trying to catch up to this next generation, and this next generation is already too behind. We, we as millennials, I, in my opinion, we're the recipients of a lot of denigration and a lot of, of criticism and dismissal. People say, you know, oh, these millennials, they don't want to work. They, they're lazy. They're about instant gratification. None of that, in my experience, holds true in the data or or in in anecdotes with people around right, let, me. Let me let me get yeah. defensive. Let me get defensive for a little bit. Get um, defensive, but, yeah. And, but it's really not <laughs> towards me because I happen to agree with you. But reality yeah. is, for the millennials, many of them started in the workforce at a time with with the economic decline. Yeah. Uh, so the world was in recession. So th- and they're coming oftentimes from baby boomer parents who had, you know, were coming out of a very prosperous economy. Do you think that has something to do with it? I, I think it does. Yeah. I, I mean, I graduated in 2009, right in the throes of Stimulus Tuesdays and, and massive economic unrest. And there are also a lot of ways in which that's, yeah, that's resulted in some you know, one of the stereotypes is the millennials are living with their parents still. Why is that? Yeah, what's what's the price of a house these days versus uh, the price in terms of hours worked that it was when a boomer was our age? But if you look at what the millennials are doing about it, especially now, you know, when we were teenagers, we weren't real good at figuring it out. But that process formed us. And 10 years on, millennials are buying tiny houses Millennials are doing van dwelling. Millennials are bringing back boarding houses. We're, we're getting really creative about ways to live in changing world, uh, right. which is only getting more more uh, important with things like COVID nineteen. Now, most people, when they when they look at some of these category descriptions, they get into the technological side because if you look at the sure. generations technologically and. I don't want to get into that summary just simply because everybody can figure out, okay, you're talking about when did the 
cell phone come around? When did the computer come around? All that stuff. But by the time you get to your generation, you saw the advent really of the cell phone world, but it was familiar territory where for previous generations, it took a while for them to catch up. That had an impact on ministry that you just described. So for me, when I started, I started a church in when I was 29 years old, so much younger than you. And it's now a church of a couple thousand people on the East Coast. But the big thing for us was we got to get really good sound systems that weren't ridiculously expensive. And that was what technology meant was, while we can have sounds and lights and actually communicate instead of having dark, dingy churches that smelled like mold. But that means something really going to be different for you now in terms of ministry, because you're not talking about using a computer and a phone. You're talking about means of real communication, right? I, I mean, I, all of that, all of that is true. This is Church Hurts, so I pull out my edgy side a little bit. My experience is that if you were to line up the vast majority of the things that uh, that get said about the kids these days, about the younger generation, the majority of those things, when you tell them to someone of an older generation or when somebody of an older generation repeats them, they ring true and they get repeated again because they are true of that generation of the older generation. And so talking about uh, the changing world of technology for millennials, it, I mean, it's it's true, we, we have smartphones, but phones have been gradually increasing in intelligence since Alexander Graham Bell. And if I were to pick like a real meteoric shift, like the most important invention of the 20th century, it's certainly not the smartphone. The internet pushes it, but I'm going to give it to the transistor, which was invented in 1947. The transistor is what defined the technological life of the baby boomers and made the world of the baby boomers just dramatically different from their parents because we didn't have vacuum tubes anymore. And suddenly portable technology was possible. There would be no smartphones without transistors. The tech-obsessed generation I'm giving that to the baby boomers. I mean, the connected to their devices, instant gratification, that's that's coming out of the 60s, baby. And and um, what we um, see now is a reflection um, of that. I'm asking you, yeah. but what, what, what does that mean in terms of now for ministry? We're sitting here. I'm sitting in my yeah. home. You're in your home. We're having to communicate because we're in shutdown and we're avoiding sure. talking about the virus called Corona because we're both sick of it. But in terms of <laughs> ministry, you kind of suspect that this is going to have an impact because of the communication that is so much easier for you than it is for me. It's annoying, right? Well, yeah. I, I mean, you've got to use all of the tools at your disposal all of the time. And and when a new tool comes out, you got to use that one too. And so I am doing enormous work to try to catch up to Gen Z with their love of YouTube. Uh, YouTube is a big deal. If you go to the elementary schools right now and you ask kids what they want to be, you will not hear nearly so much firefighter and astronaut as you did in my day. You're going to hear, I want to be a YouTuber. That's one of the most popular, coolest things to do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm working on YouTube channels. But I, I gotta I gotta give credit where credit's due and say, you know, it was the it was the people who put a gospel presentations on 
radio and then television that were the forebears of that. A nice radio show, by the way. Thank you. And let me, I want, I want to pick on yeah. your church hurt side thing. Pick, I, pick I, I want to hear a little bit about your pain because you, yeah. your dad, your dad was on the pastoral staff at a church being a preacher's mm-hmm. kid. You know, the records aren't all that great for preacher's kids. They're not as bad no. as people think they are. And there's a lot of preacher's kids that did end up becoming preachers, but usually they got pretty rebellious and usually they started with some real resentment at the church. I mean, you saw the underside, the underbelly of the church. You saw mm-hmm. some bad stuff. Yeah, I my dad at Mariners. Mariners is a pretty people church, I, or at least it was. I mean, I I can't speak for the last fifteen years, but but Mariners was a place for the the good looking Newport Beach Christians to go, and uh, my dad was the pastor of the not pretty people at the pretty people church. Um, really he was. was, yeah, he, he was in charge of the drug addiction, the grief and funerals, the, the mental weirdnesses, so care and recovery. I make fun of him because at one point he changed his job title to the pastor of pain, which I always felt like <laughs> sounded like a wrestler. The minister <laughs> of mayhem, the pastor of pain. But that, that was my, yeah, that, I mean, when we had Christmas parties at our house, it was full of all the weird folks. In some ways, that grew in my heart for ministry. I remember being in junior high and interested in computers and being mentored by a homeless person that was part of my dad's circle. You know, he he was uh, learning and getting his A-plus certifications, and I was at I was a preteen, and so I, I got to enter into that world through Leonard and appreciate and see kind of non-judgmental, self-sacrificial love and withness, you know, incarnational belonging to, not a, I'm reaching my hand down to serve you, but you're actually serving me. You're mentoring me I, that I've carried with me. But I, I also got to see, yeah, a lot of the toxic political BS that uh, that infested a massive corporation that was also a church like Mariners that made me say, well, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but certainly not a pastor. But then there's this thing called call. You know, say what you will about my my virtues and my preferences, but I'm I'm really afraid of whales. I just don't don't <laughs> like it. whales. So when God calls you into ministry, you go. I get it. You know, right? I wish we had longer. Um, I I'm going to have to wrap up. But that was I really thank you for saying that. You know, and you know, you called the church by name. But you know, everybody. I don't care what name you put on that church. If you get yeah. into it close enough, whether anything it's huge. A, yeah, well, you got the huge issue. I just got the institutional thing. There's some really wicked little churches out there that just kill people. Sure, but you know what? There's too. another there's another side and and how thankful for the good things. The fact that you didn't run too far, I'm thankful. And, and talking with you, Ryan, has reminded me of, of two things that I am tempted to forget every day. The first one, uh, everyone has a unique story, and I mean everyone. The way life happens, we often see someone do something or hear someone say something, and we just let our mind take off and assume that they're a jerk or that they're wonderful or we're in love with them or 
We hope we'll never see him again for the rest of our life. Hold on. Until you know their story, you don't know them. And secondly, categories can be helpful, but rarely are they complete. Ryan is an ordained Presbyterian minister. Ryan grew up in a Southern California megachurch with a father who was a pastor. Those are categories which are incomplete. So let me leave you with a story about Ryan that he doesn't know I'm going to tell. Ryan was in the sixth grade, and he had a close neighborhood friend. And together they decided to form a club. And Ryan decided he would be the CEO, and his friend would be the CEO's assistant. And they made medallions that hung from leather shoelaces to hang around their necks. I know this because the next day, another medallion was hung around the CEO's assistant's neck, who happened to be my son. What's the new medallion, I asked. And he showed me both. This one is for being the CEO's assistant and is of high rank. My son was very serious and very proud as he explained all this to me. I was lucky to catch it on video, which one day I will dig up for you, Ryan. I'm guessing that that some of our listeners are not hearing a word I'm saying because they're lost remembering the importance of those clubs that they were part of as kids. They seemed really important along with their roles and their positions within them. And you know what? They were. They taught us about friends and people and self-worth, and some of those lessons we'll never forget. It seems to me that while the church is a lot more than a kid's club, we might do well to remember something from them. The church's founder has a medal to give if you are one of those seekers. If you're confused and you don't have it all figured out, if you're still seeking, wear that medal proudly because it's worth something. Your future looks bright. Jesus, talking to a crowd one day, said some amazing things. They were on the edge of their proverbial seats, and he said this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. One day, you will turn that seeker medal in for one that says, Found, found by a God. And that's just a great way to live. And it's worth a thought. For Church Hurts and this is John Bash. Love somebody and enjoy God today, won't you? And that brings us to the close of yet another edition of Church Hurts and. And if you want to learn more, that's what the and means to you. If you want to continue the conversation with Dr. John Bash, he's a shepherd with Standing Stone a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving ministry too soon. Find out more about all that he does. You can check them out. Standing Stone Ministry. And to find more about Church Hurts itself, well, come visit us at the churchhurtsand.org website. Churchhurtsand.org. Right here, North County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio. Dot net.